Chapter 5, verses 1 to 9. After these things, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now, there is in Jerusalem by the sheep gate a pool which is called in Hebrew Bethesda, having five porches. In these lay a multitude of them that were sick, blind, halt, withered. And a certain man was there who had been thirty and eight years in his infirmity. When Jesus saw him lying, he knew that he had been now a long time in that case. He said to him, Would you be made whole? The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no one when the water is troubled to put me into the pool. But while I am coming, another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, Arise, take up your bed, and walk. And immediately the man was made whole and took up his bed and walked. Okay, so you've got uh, Jesus here at the feast in Jerusalem. Don't know what feast it was, but I'll tell you the, the important thing about this time wasn't whatever uh, feast it was, but it's the Sabbath day. That's what's really going to be the focus here. So you might think of this more as being the Sabbath day than whatever feast is unnamed of the Jews. He's there in Jerusalem, and there's this, uh, there's this pool. And uh, there's a lot of sick people around the pool. Now, there is an inserted part in the end of 3 and 4 that says, waiting for the moving of the waters, for an angel of the Lord went down at certain seasons into the pool and stirred up the water. Whoever then first, after stirring up the water, stepped in, was made well from whatever disease with which he was afflicted. Now that part, if you've got it in your Bible, is not textual. Most of the better manuscripts do not contain that. The evidence, I think, is very strong that that part was added by later copyists just to sort of help people understand why there were all these sick people around that pool. I think it's accurate as far as that's why they were there. Not necessarily that there was ever an angel that stirred up the waters, but they thought there was. And, uh, but it's not in the original text. Very poor attestation externally. A lot of non-John words. And so that's just something that's an interpolation that got, you know, put into some of the later Greek manuscripts, but it really shouldn't be there. But I do think it's what they thought. Great. So uh, how much of that section did you say was not? Well, you probably got, depending on what your translation is, you probably got it in brackets or something in your Bible. But it's starting with the waiting for the moving of the water, so the very end of three and then all of four. Uh, what would be your reasoning, I guess, for thinking that they think that just because that's why someone included it because he thought that they'd be thinking that? <laughs> I'm not sure I got that. <laughs> Are you asking me why I think it's not textual or why I think somebody put it in? Yeah. Why did they believe it? <laughs> think all kinds of stuff. <laughs> Is that a good answer? I don't know. Because the link man says, I have nobody to throw me in until he gets in there first. Yeah, yeah, I mean, that's what they thought, but why they thought that, I don't know. Maybe they probably got some sort of a story somewhere along the line of somebody put, got put in that water and lo and behold, he was well after that. And, you know, I mean, we got in Brazil all these statues of Mary and one thing or another where she's supposed to be crying and she's supposed to really have, you know, inhabited the statue and all that kind of stuff. I don't know why people believe that stuff. So I think this is probably the same thing. It's probably kind of a legend that grew up. But anyhow, so this, this paralyzed guy, he's been paralyzed for 38 years, and he's there and Jesus asking the question, it's a pretty good question, do you wish to get well? Um, you know, I mean, it's a good question to ask even spiritually. Do you want to get well? Do you want to be healed? 
That seems like a pretty logical place to start. And he's like, sure, I do, but I always get there too late. Nobody put me in the water so somebody else gets in first. The idea is only the first person that goes in, you know, actually uh, is, is, is blessed, is healed. That's what they thought. So I always get there too late, and, and I can't. Well, does this man appear to know anything about who Jesus is? No. Would you say he's a man who has faith in Jesus? No, not really. I mean, this is a, the healing of somebody who's just sort of, you know, there. And Jesus approaches him. And so, Jesus said to him, get up, pick up your pallet, and walk. And he does. It's, it's just amazing. You know, think about it. He was 38 years in this condition. That shows you how serious his disease was. Him picking up his stretcher and walking shows how complete the cure is. You know, he starts, you know, he, he holds the, the stretcher that had held him. So it's just an amazing, remarkable event, Jesus' healing of this paralytic. Now that leads to the rest of the chapter. Comments or questions on these first nine verses? Ben? This man, you can rightly make the point he had no faith in Jesus, but think about what he did have faith in. He believed in this as well and what would happen here. And I think therein we see the fault with this kind of belief that comes from miracles and things like that. If it's strictly based on those things, that's subjective, it's impulsive. And again, God wants a certain kind of character, not just a certain emotion. Even though the proper character will lead to the right emotion. But this man believes in this well. This is the other belief in Jesus. Very good. Other comments? So look at what happens here. 10 to uh, 18. The Jews therefore said to him, Who was cursed? Uh, or who was cured? It, it is the Sabbath. It is not lawful, lawful for you to carry your bed. He answered them, He who made me well said to me, Take up your bed and walk. Then they said to him, Who is this man who said to you, Take up your bed and walk? To what are you? 18. 18. Um, but the one who was healed, healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn, withdrawn to being in that place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you have been made well. Sin no more, lest the worst thing come upon you. The man departed and told, told the Jews that it was Jesus who had made him well. For this reason, Jesus for this reason, the Jews persecuted Jesus and sought to kill him, because he had done these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered, answered them, My father has, has been working until now, and I have been working. Therefore the Jews sought all the more to kill him, because he did not only break he did not he not only broke the Sabbath, but also said that God was the Father, making him equal with God. Okay. So the Jews saw this man, he's carrying this stretcher on the Sabbath day, and they say it's not permissible for you to carry something on the Sabbath day. You weren't supposed to do any work. And what's his answer? Somebody told him to. Yeah. Well, what gave him the right to tell him to? Would he have just listened to anybody who told him to? Apparently. 
He healed them. Exactly. The guy who made me well and able to do this told me to. Now it's interesting that the Jews only think about the supposed violation of the Sabbath. They completely ignore the miracle. I mean, you know, you see this paralyzed guy walking around carrying his stretcher, and what do you think? It's a Sabbath day, you're not allowed to carry your stretcher. <laughs> Hello? You know, there's something that you might think works. He's carrying a stretcher, he's walking. Um, and so they ask him, well, who is the man who told you to pick up your stretcher and go? Do you think they really didn't know? I mean, who else is traversing Palestine healing people? I think they're trying to get legal evidence to use against Jesus to try to convict him of the violation of the Sabbath day, that is, violation of their Sabbath traditions. He doesn't know. That's amazing. He's been healed. He doesn't even know who it was. But Jesus finds him in the temple in verse 14. He says, Behold, you become well. Do not sin anymore so that nothing worse happens to you. I mean, what could be worse? The 38 years of paralysis. Hell. Yeah. We should never think that we have exhausted the power of God's wrath. I hear sometimes you do two people saying, well, you know, things have been so bad for me, it couldn't be any worse in, in hell. You know, I mean, I've already gone through that on earth. No. We have no clue. It could be much, much worse. And Jesus is saying, you, you need to repent and don't sin anymore or it will be worse than this. Spiritual ailments and the spiritual punishment is much worse than anything we could suffer physically. And so the, Jew, the, the man goes and he tells him, it was Jesus. I'm not sure what he was thinking. I don't know whether he was trying to just conciliate the Jews or whether he's trying to just give the information they wanted, or whether or not he's trying to honor him. But whatever, the Jews persecuted Jesus because he was doing things, these things on the Sabbath day. You're not allowed to. He's encouraging, he's, he's sort of uh, aiding and abetting men in, you know, working on the Sabbath. What's Jesus' defense? Yeah, my father's working on the Sabbath day, and I do what he does. Well, he means God, the Father. God works on the Sabbath day? I thought he rested on the Sabbath day. Did he rest on the Sabbath? Creation. Yeah, he quit creating. Does God work in some senses on the Sabbath? Like, what does he do? He sacrifices. Okay, he receives sacrifices. Keeps the universe in order. Yeah, he maintains the universe. You know, laws of nature don't take a holiday every Sabbath day. He answers prayers, you know, and so forth and so on. So, yes, God rested. He didn't keep creating. But no, he keeps working in some sense of the Sabbath day, the same senses in which Jesus is working here. Of course, that just make, makes bad matters worse for the Jews. Now they're persecuting him, not just because... He broke the Sabbath, but because? Yeah, he's calling God his father. They think that's blasphemy. So they got a double reason to persecute him now. Comments and questions through 18. Eric. Um, what would you say is like the point or the lesson he's trying to teach from this miracle? 
Well, that's a good question. I, I mean, I think that Jesus gives not only life, but strength and activity. And he can cure us of our diseases, even if we were born with them or whatever, that Jesus can transform. So I think his, his physical healings really point to a deeper spiritual healing he came to give us. So he came to, to give us mobility if we've been spiritually paralyzed. Yes, great. I would say so too. Tell me if this is right to base it on this. Jesus, when he found him in the temple, I would be assuming if the guy is thanking or praising God for what happened, uh, and that's why he's in the temple. I mean, Jesus says, You have become well. So, I mean, Jesus saw him when he got out of the wall. What he's more concerned about is the guy called spiritually. Not sure if that's too much to read into that one. I don't know. Yes, lady. Uh, and then you can also see. Uh, continual obedience from it. Like, he healed him, but he didn't just leave him alone and say, okay, go do whatever you want. He said, you know, send him more. Yeah, you see Jesus cared about, you know, his well-being, not just him walking. And what he really needs is to repent and live right. And Jesus cared about that. Jesus, you know, some people would have said that was nosy, that was, you know, kind of uh, controlling or whatever. But Jesus cared enough to help him with what he really needed. Yes, Chris? Was he breaking the Sabbath? No, I don't think he was breaking the law of God about the Sabbath. He was breaking their traditions about the Sabbath, of which there were zillions. Read the Mishnah sometime. But, uh, for example, this is typical of them. According to tradition, carrying a living man on a couch was okay. Because in that case, the couch was secondary. But you couldn't carry the couch if it didn't have a person on it. <laughs> Which just shows you the arbitrariness of their rules. Oh, there are so many like that. The Mishnah is like from 300 years after, but wow. You start reading through some of that stuff, it's just fascinating. You know, it's the kind of thing we tend to want to do when we want to come up with detailed, specific applications of every principle and bind them on everybody. You know, we've got it all worked out as to where, you know, you miss services for this, it's okay, but if you go to one more of this or that or whatever, it's not, that kind of stuff. We've got our legal, you know, ways of maneuvering, and we kind of abandon the principles just to make sure that we get every situation covered with some kind of a rule. Well, I mean, you know, we don't have a specific application rule for every detail. If God had wanted us to, he'd have probably known how to give it to us. So we need to be content with what he's given us. He's given us principles, let's teach the principles. Let's make application, but let's not make some kind of specific, detailed, legalistic code that we don't have the authority for. They did that. I think they did it because they didn't want the people to break God's law. But they ended up really missing the whole point. Mason. So with the discussion that follows, you think that this miracle serves to kind of illustrate in a spiritual sense that Jesus is freeing us from the silly restrictions we put upon ourselves that handicap us in our service to God or that we place on others even worse? Well, I think both of those are reasonable applications. Now, he's going to go on and make a whole different point. The discussion is really going to be about him making himself equal with God, so to speak. 
But I do think that the way Jesus treats the Sabbath and other things show that he was unwilling to be bound by these traditional rules that weren't really fair applications of Scripture. Jesus did a lot of things that shocked good religious people. He was not necessarily trying to conform to what everybody's expectations were. I don't believe Jesus ever did break any law of God. But he broke plenty of laws of man when it's all said and done. They thought they were laws of God, but they really weren't. And you start looking at the Old Testament, and the applications they made about the Sabbath day are really not fair applications from the principles in the Old Testament. Yes, David. Uh, I was going to just point out how, uh, obviously, Christ had a, a greater need in mind here by saying, uh, sin no more. That's the worst thing come upon you. Uh, but I think it, it's interesting to point out how he did that miracle uh, in order for him to take up his bread and walk, as you talked about. How uh, they would point out to him, well, who told you to do this? You know, well, because of that miracle, because of his authority to do that, to, to do that miracle, he's now doing this, taking up his bed and walking. And then Christ then commands him to sin no more. That's the worst thing come upon you. Well, now that he has that authority, he knows that Christ has that authority. He might have the courage now to sit no more. Just as he had the courage to take up his bed and walk uh, on the Sabbath. So. Good point. Yeah. Yes, Emily. I have a question. Wasn't he still in the Old Testament? Did he have to stay on the Sabbath? Yes, he was. So then, how did they know when they were in Galilee? Well, it suggests that the people were trying to be over the past, or were they really being, I know the Pharisees were being pretty funny, perhaps, but were the people, does that make sense? Yeah, of course, that's obviously the question. You know, and you have to go based upon what the scriptures say. I think they were trying to be very cautious. And they, their idea was they build a fence around the law. God's, God's law restricts you here, so they'll restrict you in a bigger area, and that way you can't get through that fence to break the law of God. The problem is, if God had wanted his word fancy to fence and so I don't think picking up sticks is equivalent to picking up the stretcher. That's what I would say. Yeah, Ben. And wasn't that man also working to do that? He wasn't just carrying the stretcher home after he'd been healed. I mean, he was working. And that's what Jesus asked in Mark 3 when they were confronting him. Well, he confronts them before he healed the withered hand of that man there. He says, is it lawful to do good or to kill him? Wasn't this that Jesus was trying to, to pick law, pick fights with them and, and offend them in the way they view these laws? He didn't tell Peter to get a bunch of sticks or a stretcher and walk through town and see what you can get going. He said, you know, I'm going to kill this man. I'm going to do something good here. And so... Maybe Jesus was trying to pick fights. In this sense, what was the purpose of the Sabbath? Several things, but a part of it was to remind them of their being released from Egyptian slavery. The Sabbath symbolized deliverance and release it symbolized um, the reversal of the penalty of sin, the curse for hard, of hard work. And Jesus was the greater Sabbath who came to give us true rest. And Jesus delivered some of these people perhaps purposely on the Sabbath to show himself as the one who gives deliverance and rest to those who are bound and afflicted. So I think there's a sense in which Jesus may have purposely chosen the Sabbath day for some of those things because it really does show you him as the ultimate Sabbath. I guess just sometimes we have the 
counter argument that takes it too far where it says, you know, if anybody has anything that they think that's just not strictly spelled out, they're worthy of contempt by stronger Christians, or to use the language of Romans 14, you know, and we just look down and we find that every opportunity we have to, to rub their faces in, basically. And, and yet Paul says at the same time, you know, I came as a Jew to the Jews and a Greek to the Greeks. And, yeah, we, we've got to trust the Lord. You know, what the Lord says is adequate. He gave us everything we need. You know, so he's given us all the principles we need. He's given us all the, the tools to work with. We don't need to help him out by just adding some arbitrary rules of our own or by building a hedge that he didn't build. Let's be very careful to listen to everything he says. We want to please him. His word is awesome. It's exactly what we need. We should never have the idea, well, yeah, I know it says that, but it's not a big deal. No, no, everything he says is a big deal. But, but to kind of feel the need to go beyond what he says, to add our own rules and restrictions and so forth, that he has not given us. Why do we feel the need to do that? Why not just trust him? And it would be different if I say, you know, I just won't do this myself because I don't feel comfortable with this. I think Romans 14 would say, by all means, but then to turn around and condemn you because you don't follow my rule, that's a problem. Logan. Looking at Jesus and how he wasn't afraid to do something that you would result in conflict. To me, I'm afraid we only want to go halfway. We want to do something good, but as long as it won't cause a conflict. I've had the opportunity to uh, have a Bible study with a couple of friends of mine that are friends of mine that aren't Christians. But what I found is I, is I want to do a Bible study, but not on something that they're going to disagree with me. Now, we can say this, but as long as this doesn't come up and they're going to be, you know, have disagreements with me, that's going to cause conflict. And as long as I can do it without causing conflict, then I'm okay. Yeah, there's a lot to be said about that. And obviously, there's some things on all sides. Second Timothy 2, 24 to 26 would say we ought not to live to be contentious. We ought to be gentle and meek and trying to recover people from the snare of the devil. But mostly in our culture, we are conditioned to avoid all type of confrontation at all costs. And, and I think often, if we talk to somebody about their soul, about the scriptures, about the Lord or whatever, and that person goes away unhappy with us, our first question is, oh no, what did I do wrong? You know, wh wh where have I missed it? Well, that, that should not be our first question. I mean, maybe we ought to say if they go away happy with us, we ought to say, where did I go wrong? You know, Jesus did not shrink back from confrontation. We're in a culture that says confrontation is the last thing you want. But I think, biblically, we certainly can't say that. Look at Paul. Look at the debates and so forth that he had with the Jews as he confronted them to try to convert them. I don't mean by that to be contentious, you know, we got that balance. But we're way overbalanced on the side, usually, of just trying to shrink back from any controversy and thinking if there is one, we must have missed it. Well, there was one around Jesus pretty much 24-7. <coughs> Anything else you need to say? Okay, sorry. Question. Um, uh, why didn't Jesus stand up for himself in the way of... Con uh, dealing with their, you know, additions to the sabbatical law, it seems like he almost pulls the 
you know, I'm God Trump Carl or something. He's like, you know, my father is this and he's working. You know, he could have just said, you know, well, you have added to the law. Well, Jesus, I think, here is dealing with the charge of blasphemy more than he is with the charge of the violation of the Sabbath. That's probably a more serious accusation, and it leads him into being able to say some things he really wanted to teach them. There are other passages where Jesus deals with their misconceptions about the Sabbath. I would suggest, for example, Mark 2, 23 to 28, Matthew 12, 1 to 8, and so forth, where he does go into that. But here, I mean, they're, they're, for this reason, the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Because he was not only breaking the Sabbath, but what really mattered now to them, he was calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. And so that's what he's going to deal with. So, Jake. Uh, I think John's point was that in verse 17, he doesn't say, well, I'm allowed to do that. You're going to that. In verse 17, as John called the trump card, uh, that, you know, he's, he makes himself equal with the father, that's why it's okay. But I don't think that's what he's saying either. I don't think he's saying so much, God is doing it, I'm God, therefore I can break the Sabbath. I think he's saying God does things on the Sabbath, so can we. Now he's calling God his own father, and he is saying that, but I don't think he's trying to say, I can get by with some things on the Sabbath, you guys can't, because I'm, I'm the son. No, I don't think he's doing that at all. I think whatever Jesus did on the Sabbath, if men had the ability to do it, it would have been okay too. I mean, this lame man is carrying the stretcher. You know, it's not Jesus carrying the stretcher. It wasn't wrong for him to do that. And, and so, I don't see Jesus as trying to say, you know, I just got a special exemption because I've, you know, got special connections at all. Yeah. Matthew 12, he makes that explicit example of the priest. He says the priest breaks the Sabbath every week. They work and they do the sacrifices. And he's not saying, well, you know, look, the priest do it too, so, you know, you need to go stone them before you get to me. He's saying, if they're doing that, you need to think a little bit more about what you're saying. Yes, exactly. In other words, some things need to be done on the Sabbath, and God wants them to be done. You know, he'll make the point, John, you circumcise a kid on the eighth day, even if it's the Sabbath. And I don't think he's trying to say that was bad. I think he's saying you guys even recognize that not all activity is prohibited on the Sabbath day. And it wasn't. So what God did was fair for others to do analogous kind of thing. Well, let's go on to see what Jesus is saying here. This is an interesting sermon on his part. Uh, 19 to uh, 30. Therefore Jesus answered and was saying to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of himself unless it is something he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, these things the Son also does in like manner. <coughs> For the Father loves the Son and shows him all things that he himself is doing. And the Father will show him greater works than these, so that you will marvel. For just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the Son also gives life to whom he wishes. For not even the Father judges anyone, but he has given all judgment to the Son, so that all will honor the Son, even as they honor the Father. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and does not come into judgment, 
but has passed out of death into life. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and now is when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For just as the Father has life in himself, even so he gave, even so he gave to the Son also to have life in himself. And he gave him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming in which all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and will come forth those who did the good deeds to a resurrection of life, those who committed the evil deeds to a resurrection of judgment. I can do nothing on my own initiative. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just because I do not seek my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Okay, now, do you see this thing they were saying in 18? He's making himself equal with God. Jesus is saying, I'm not making myself anything. Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of himself. Unless it's something he sees the Father doing. But whatever the Father does, these things the Son also doesn't like matter. Jesus does not act independently of God or make himself something. This is such a big theme in John. The fact that Jesus doesn't act on his own. You know, that, that's a key point. Let's, let's do a little bit with this. Let's see, Matt, you want to get 828. And Micah uh, Souter, you want to get uh, 1249. And uh, Andrew, you want to get uh, 1410. And uh, Jason, you want to get uh, 728. And uh, Grady, you want to get uh, 842. Let's see, where did I go with that, Matt? So Jesus said to them, When you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am He, and that I do nothing of my own authority, but speak just as the Father taught me. Okay, and Micah? For I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me has himself given me a command, what to say and what to speak. Okay, and uh, Andrew? Do you not believe that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own initiatives, but the Father abiding in me does his works. Okay, Jason. Then Jesus cried out in the temple, teaching and saying, You both know me and know where I am from. And I have not come myself, but he who sent me is true, whom you do not know. I'm great. Jesus said to them, If God were your father, you would love me, for I proceeded forth and came from, from God. Nor have I come of myself, but he said to me, do you see how Jesus didn't speak of his own accord? He didn't act of his own accord. He didn't come on his own accord. Jesus does nothing on his own. Everything he does is what the Father says. We need that. That's exactly the right spirit. It's the Lord. We do as he commands. So, he didn't make himself anything. He says in verse 20, the Father loves the Son. And he gave him these things that he's doing. Now, Here's the works that the Father gave the Son to do. In verse 21, what does He give the Son to do? Give life. That's a pretty special ability. Go right back to the theme of the book. In Him is life. And in verse 22, what does He give Him to do? 
So God puts the most fundamental realities of human existence, giving life and judgment into Jesus' hand in verse 23, so that all will honor the Son even as they honor the Father. That is incredible. How much honor should we give the Son? The answer is, as much as we give the Father. It's exactly right. Now, that doesn't seem right. If you were to honor the Son as much as you do the Father, what would you be worried about? Jealousy on the Father's part. You know, it's like, well, you wouldn't want to do that. It might make the Father upset. Philippians chapter 2 is a really helpful passage. Philippians 2.11. You know this passage. That every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Do you see that? To the glory of God the Father. Honoring the Son glorifies God. That's the way that works. So, Jesus deserves all the honor we give to the Father. That, that's needed sometimes, too. Sometimes people have a hard time uh, with that. Uh, let me pause. Is there a burning statement through verse 23? Yes, Elizabeth. Good point. Um, I think what I would say about that is that the unity of the Father and the Son is such that they do not act independently of each other and that Jesus submits to his Father's will but that submission and inferiority are two different things. You know, it's a lot of times when God tells say, a wife to submit to her husband. Is he saying that a woman is an inferior nature being to a man? No. But she submits to the will of her husband. So I'd say that submission and doing the will of someone and not acting on your own is not the same as being a lower natured person. That would be my answer. Josh? I'm not sure about that, but, but certainly foreshadowing what he does after he's raised, he gives life and he judges. You know, in a sense, 21 and 22 are the works the Father gives the Son to do. Now see the applications of those works for us in 24 to 29. In 24, truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal lives. Jesus gives eternal spiritual life. Verse 25. An hour is coming and now is when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. Now, this is talking about spiritual life. Because the hour now is and the life comes only to those who hear. I'm not talking about the resurrection of the dead physically. Spiritually, Jesus gives life to those who hear. God had him be the life giver. Verse 21, that's what Jesus does. Look at 26. What's special about Jesus' life that's not true of us? 
He has life in himself. What does that mean? It means he is the source of his own existence. Exactly. Jesus has inherent life. He doesn't depend on anything else for his life like we do. We do not have life in ourselves. Our life depends totally on the Lord. Jesus does. So he's able to give life. Verse 27, he judges. And then he comes back in 28 and 29, he gives life in a different sense. An hour is coming, he doesn't say and now is, but an hour is coming in which all who are in the tombs will hear his voice. Everybody will hear his voice. Not just those who hear, but all will hear and will be raised either to life or judgment. So this is the resurrection from the dead. And, and that's what Jesus will do at the end. The hour is coming which will raise everybody and give physical life back to everybody. Spiritual life, verse 24 and 25, of those who hear. Comments and questions? Ben? All this discussion about the judgment that Jesus has in Acts chapter 3 in that session we talked about, he didn't come into the world to judge. Is the difference that he didn't come leaving the world to judge? I would say that. I think that's good. Yes, bring it. And what sense then did the Father give to the Son to have life in himself? I mean, if we're talking about Son having inherent life, how did the Father give that to Nothing that he has that he's not given by the Father. That's the relationship between them. But he's not, but, but I would say it's not that the Son has even independent inherent life. He and the Father have life that's independent of any other source. I don't think Jesus is trying to assert his independence from the Father here. How did the Father give it, though? Everything Jesus has, the Father gives him. Doesn't that break the definition of inherent life? The life of the no, because the life of the Father and the Son is inherent life. I, I'm saying, I don't think Jesus has inherent life independent of the Father. I'm not saying that Jesus somehow has life on his own apart from the Father. They're together in that, Mason. Jesus is going to come back to this principle in chapter 6 when he talks about the bread of life. And this may help maybe illustrate this. He says, if you eat of me, you will partake of my life as I partake of the Father's life. So it's, it's that same principle. It isn't that you know we have our own independent life because of Christ. We exist in Him, just as He exists in the Father when we partake of His nature. I think his point is never that he does something independent of the Father. You know, he is very much... You know, all that he does is not of himself. It's what the Father gives him. So it would be, I think it'd be wrong to think, well, I have life, Jesus has life in himself that's not derived from the Father, that's not dependent on the Father. His inherent life in himself is, is, includes the Father in that package. That's, that's what, I, what I would say. He really does stress a ton in John that he does not act or do anything independently, that it all is based on the Lord, and there's many passages where God gives him what he has. And again, you know, we struggle with that because we have a hard time, well then how can he be equally God? I think, I think probably Jesus or, or, or John would have said, how can he not be? Father gave him all things? You know, he, he shares in all of that with the Father. They must be equal. 
You know, I think, I think submission and dependence for John does not mean inequality. I think he sees submission and dependence as being a, a beautiful relationship. I don't know, you can think about that. I'm, I'm probably in over my head at this point. Other thoughts? J.D. Can you give like a summary or a train of thought that runs through these verses of kind of what is going on? Well, I think Jesus is answering the question, you know, he's making himself equal to God. He says in 19 and 20, I'm not independent. I'm not making anything of myself. I'm doing what the Father gives me. What does the Father give him? Well, 21, give life. 22, judge. Therefore, he should receive equal honor. So what does that mean the Son does for us? Well, 24 to 26, he gives us life spiritually. 27, he judges. And 28 and 29, he gives life physically. Okay. Ah, uh, that's, I don't think I know enough to answer that question. I really just, I don't understand theology, so. Yeah, some of that's just, I don't know, exactly, if, if, if I can say exactly what their eternal relationship has been, I'm just not sure I know enough to say that. Rick? Uh, what's the point of the universe 27 saying, because he is the son of man, Maybe, maybe he's now more qualified to judge because he shares our nature. Anything else? All right. Uh, so he comes back in thirty and says, "I can do nothing on my own initiative." He is very clear, I do not seek my own will, but the will of him who sent me. You know, in 18, they seek to kill him. In 30, he does not seek his own will. His life is entirely at the disposal of his father. And uh, you might look at 15.5 for a moment. I am the vine, you are the branches, he who abides in my, me, and I am him, he bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. So we do not do anything on our own. We depend on him. Look at 16.13. But when he, the spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you in all the truth. For he will not speak on his own initiative. But whatever he hears, he will speak. He will disclose you what to come. So the spirit does nothing independently. You have this idea of, of doing the will of someone else, of not doing things on your own initiative. That's true of Jesus. That's true of the believer. It's true of the spirit. That's kind of the rule of things in his kingdom. All right. 31 to 30, uh, 31 to 40. Get, get it. Speak. 30, I'm lost. I, 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 sorry, I just Well, I think 30 goes right back to 19. I think it's kind of wrapping things up. He just doesn't act independently. He doesn't make himself anything. Everything he does, says, whatever, it's from God. That is very much a theme in John. Okay, now, 31 to 40. If I alone testify about myself, my testimony is not true. 
There is another who testifies of me, and I know that the testimony which he gives about me is true. You have sent to John, he has testified to the truth. But the testimony which I received is not from men, but I say these things so that you may be saved. He was the lamp that was burning and was shining, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his life. But the testimony which I have is greater than the testimony of John. For the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I do, testify about me that the Father has sent me. And the Father who sent me, he has testified of me. You have neither heard his voice at any time, nor seen his form. You do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe him whom he sent. You search the scriptures, because you think that in them you have eternal life. It is these that testify about me. And you are unwilling to come to me, since you may have life. I do not... So... If I testify about myself, my testimony is not true. That is not valid. Can you witness your own signature? You know, so unsupported evidence doesn't prove anything. We're back to our trial motif. Jesus says it. Are there witnesses? He says there is. Verse 32, there's another who testifies of me. Wonder who it is. Who is he talking about in 32? God. Now, there was one he mentions, 33 to 35, John. He, he wasn't, he did testify to the truth, but, but he's not talking about a human witness, but he goes ahead and mentions John to help them. I mean, John was a witness to Jesus. So if they'll accept John's witness, then they'll, they'll believe in Jesus. He was a lamp that was shining, and for a while they were they rejoiced in his light. Um, but but it was kind of that superficial sort of thing, you know. It was kind of frivolous. It was kind of a, a spectacle, you know. How they giddily rejoiced in his life, kind of that idea. Uh, so, um, you know, he was he was a lamp, uh, and and he did bear witness. But he says the testimony which I have is greater than John. Now, he means God's. How does God testify about Jesus? This is my beloved son, and whom I am well That's true. How does he testify about Jesus here? Right, the works in verse 36. That's one thing. The works Jesus did, healing the lame man, for example, how was he able to do that? God. So the works are one way God bears witness to Jesus. What's the other way? The scriptures. The scriptures. Absolutely. And uh, they don't know much about those. Well, you know, they never really heard God. And the scriptures, they do search the scriptures, but they miss the point. You know, it's amazing how much they knew about the Bible not to know what it's talking about. Because the scriptures in truth were testifying about him. And yet, they were unwilling to come to him so that they might have what? Life. Back to that again. Now, you know, there are a lot like people are today sometimes. Are there people today who know a ton about the Bible, but they don't see it? Yeah. There are people who are Bible scholars. And they know the Bible in, you know, Greek and Hebrew and some other languages. 
and uh, can quote it, and they can explain it, and they can, you know, but they don't see it. The Jews, the Pharisees, man, they had, they had all the commandments cataloged. I forget how it was. There were 365 negative commandments and 247 positive ones or something like that. They had it all figured out. You know, and, but they didn't see it. They searched them, but they were actually those that testified of him and they never got it. So, the Father bears witness to Jesus through the works and through his word. But they, 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 they just ignored the witness of the Father. Comments and questions. Roger. 37, and he says, You have neither heard his voice at any time nor seen it, seen his form, do not have his word. So, in other words, you don't see verse 37 as the Father being a separate witness, but the Father witnessing in his words and in his words. Maybe he's saying, Well, you've never heard a direct revelation from the Father, and the scriptures that you have heard, you don't see what they're talking about. Anything else through 40? Brigham? I think that word unwilling just means you don't want to. Yes. And that's the big reason why people don't end up believing simply giving up. Amen. David? When you made uh, at the end of verse 34, uh, exactly this saying that he brings up John and he says, I'm not satisfied by man. Well, you know, the, the witness that he's really talking about is not a human witness. It's God. But John did bear correct witness about Jesus. And so if they would listen to John and believe what he said, they'd come to Jesus. So it would save them, even though it's really not the witness Jesus was talking about. Okay, let's get this last section in before we uh, break, or break a little longer this time. Uh, 41 to 47. I do not receive glory from the people, but I know that you do not have the love of God within you. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive it. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not see the glory that comes from the only God? Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. If you believe Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? So, Jesus goes from being on the defense to being the prosecutor. I do not receive glory from man, but I know you, that you do not have the love of God in yourself. They were so much more concerned with man's approval than with God's approval, and he turns to sort of prosecuting them. And, and, and the root of their problem was spiritual failure. They don't have the love of God in them. You know, Jesus didn't fit into their mold. And, and they didn't really love God. They were seeking human glory and attention. He says, you know, I've come in my Father's name. You do not receive me. If another came in his own name, you receive him. You don't receive me because I honor the Father. They don't love God. They don't want God. You know, they, they're only concerned about men's glory. I wonder how much that gets us. How many times are we more interested in men's glory, in men's attention, in men's approval than we are in God's? That is a big issue for us. 
not just there. So often we want to impress each other. You know, we would do the stupidest things. We will lie and just put on a mask of all sorts just to keep from letting anybody know who we really are. Because we want them to look up to us. We want them to impress us and be impressed by us. They were so concerned about men's glory, they couldn't even seek God's glory. So he says, I don't need to accuse you. Your accuser is Moses. He already, he already attends to that. If you'd believe Moses, you'd believe me. He wrote about me. The Old Testament, even what Moses said, was about Jesus. <coughs> so he turns the tables. He says, you're the guys that have a problem. You don't have the love of God. You don't come to me. You're too interested in human glory, and Moses is going to be your prosecutor because you do not believe his writings, and if you don't, why would you believe my words? Man, Moses is who they prided themselves on, but he uses Moses as his chief prosecution witness. Which leads us into chapter 6, which will describe one who is greater than Moses and gives true man. That's the connections that I see. What are your comments and questions about chapter 5? You okay with all that? Very good. Then. Well, I'm not good at that, but I think 5 through 10 is focused on feasts. This is the Sabbath, we'll come to the Passover, Tabernacles, Feast of the Vindication. Um, before that, 2 to 4 started and ended with the sign in Galilee, in, in, in Canaan. Not sure what to do with that other than that. Uh, so, that's what I see. It seems like 5 kind of started with the first conflict. Yes, definitely. Yeah, there's conflict all through these chapters. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I'm, I'm worse at overall pictures, so you all can figure that out and tell me. All right.